City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Oh, okay, I just had a little cough, and that's, that was before the light went on, though, so why did I even say I did it? Um, it's City Limits. It's, uh, it's the second Wednesday of the month. It's our Energy Day, in which we talk about energy issues, and we're going to talk today to uh, Professor Libby Porter about housing issues, and we can say it's energy because houses use energy, don't they, Kim? Um, <laughs> Kim, what am I thinking about? <laughs> Meg Kimber's here. Um, that was the Kim bit, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, how are you? You've Good, been, morning. Had a bit of a break? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it was my rostered weeks off anyway, I right, think. and you yeah. went off and surfed. I did, oh, yeah, pretty wonderful. much. Sounds I'm wonderful. a surfer now, and I've given up on music, and I'm just going to surf every day. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, it actually takes a lot of work to surf, guys, do you know? It's oh, actually, yeah, yeah, you need yeah. a lot of core strength. That's and right. and uh, you, miss, you miss a lot of waves. You miss a lot of I waves. Know, I know. And where I was <laughs> on the Sunshine Coast, there was about a million people ready to take the wave if you missed it, so <laughs> no pressure. Okay, you've got Karina here, I'm Kevin Healy. Karina's pressing the buttons for us. I'm pouring tea, by the way. You all want tea? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Three teas. And, uh, well, yeah, we're going to talk to Libby Porter about a lot of issues to do with housing today. Um, mm. and, it, and she's, I think everyone, people have heard her know she's particularly interesting in this area. Could, could you mind passing that to Karina so I can sort of... For sure, no problem. Thanks. Um, and uh, just to kick us, or you anything to kick us off with, or just want to? Uh, no, no. Okay, that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yesterday's Herald Sun. The Herald Sun started again. A whole front page devoted to a call to arms all over the place. Oh, the pandemic literally. is beating Australia, and they're, they're taking up the thing. The Herald Sun's now leading the campaign to get us going. Oh my God! But their objective, <laughs> their objective, though, is to. Launch a campaign to get our country back on the road to freedom. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because freedom, in their terms, means freedom freedom of capital. Freedom to spend money. Yes, freedom of capital. Not freedom from the oppression of capitalism. No, no, no. And it's typical. I mean, when they talk about liberty, freedom and democracy, the freedom bit of liberty, freedom and democracy is... Freedom of capital. That's that's Mm -hmm. what they're all about. So Mm -hmm. the Herald Sun is fighting for the capitalists to... Get things back on. I can't believe again. they like just genuinely, non-ironically put it on their front page. A call to arms. Yeah, that's well, it, that's another nuts. thing, isn't it? Because yeah. they've now appointed an ex-train killer and current train killer to run the vaccination program, and everything he talks about is in military terms. Yeah, the whole right. thing is now being addressed as war against this, and mm-hmm. a call to arms seems to goes along with that. Mm-hmm. And last night on the telly, I saw him in some meeting, some people, and he had another army bloke sitting next to him. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. the, the military's taking over mm-hmm. the vaccination program. And mm. uh, anyway, all these trained killers running, running right, it's wonderful to see. Here's some interesting news, though. The Barcelona Institute for Global Health examined children's fluid intelligence, the ability to solve new problems and think on your feet. And they found children who eat organically produced food have better cognitive development. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, oh, that's true for me because I grew up 
in Hobart on organic food and look at me. <laughs> there's, always so the there's always exceptions <laughs> to the rule. There's always to the rule. But no, no, it's right. They found healthier diets had a direct effect on the development of children's brains. They also found eating junk food, living in overcrowded houses, and being exposed to domestic tobacco smoke, which is interesting, caused a reduction in fluid intelligence, which is a bit of a worry, actually. But uh, well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, you have, but there's such a cl- like a, you know. The issue of of the fact that lots of people, especially in certain places like in America, but also in in Australia, definitely in Tasmania, live in food deserts. They can't get any food that's like yeah. healthy, right. locally grown. Yeah. Well, indigenous communities. I mean, yeah, they, in particular. They, they where they could get their own food, and but some still do gather their own food. Yeah. And of course, that that was often that's often disappeared. And they now depended on stores that charge yep. fortunes for stuff, yep. you know, yep. even more than Coles and Woolworths charge us for things. They yeah. charge many times Absolutely. more. And well, uh, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Karina here, <laughs> jumping in from the panel. Um, all I feel like all of those things are like super highly correlated to wealth, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. and access to medical care and exactly. stuff like that. Exactly. So. I mean, they are now because of global food systems and industrial mm-hmm. food systems. But yeah, once upon a time, it was pretty normal for people to get their food locally. You might mm. know the person that's growing it, or you grow it yourself, yeah, because you had access to those kind of opportunities. And there was much less pre-packaged rubbish. I mean, yeah, you know. Stuff like supermarkets, I think, well, one, you don't buy fruit and veggies there because they, they're so expensive compared mm. to everywhere else. But then all the other stuff in tins and processed food is so bad for you. Well, yeah. it's also uh, like that label of organic and superfood in itself, like mm-hmm. it caused certain, I don't know, like southern in southern U.S. staples to skyrocket where previously no one actually gave a crap about kale, you know, <laughs> until it reached superfood status and then it was, you know, plus $2 a bunch. And it's a fad. I mean, they go through fads. The next, next year it'll be something else. Yeah. Uh, the wellness industry is such a big part of capitalism as well. Like it's so that idea of just like being well and being yeah. a better version of yourself by eating all the proper things. And, yeah. and if you go into yeah. shops that sort of specialise in those items, you know, they have boxes, box, bins of things you can get things out of. If it, the prices relative to are very high in those stores. They, they yeah, bulk food yeah. should yeah. be cheaper. Yeah. I'm confused yeah. by that as well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, meanwhile, of course, um, we found that even before they get into summer, in the US, Canada and other states, or not um, Canada, the US and, and states like California mm. are sweltering and already have bushfires. Mm. So that is, things yeah, are really looking bad. very ordinary indeed, I would have thought. Yep. Yeah. Um, but there's no. Is there such a thing as climate change? Do you think? Um, I mean, the jury's out because. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty apparent the scientists don't know what they're talking about. Not at all, because I think like ninety nine point nine percent of them agree, but there's that point one percent, and that one. is really you and, know pretty and compelling. That, and that deserves equal coverage when you talk about. It. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, now. I found this interesting because, uh, as we know, even even the US has finally caved in and they're talking about setting a at least a minimum 15% tax rate around the world to mm. get the um, particularly the Googles and the Facebooks and those companies. Mm. Uh, and who knows how it's going to work out in the end. And there's still certain things the US is complaining about that it's affecting their companies. But nonetheless, mm. there's, there's, a, there's a move on to do it. And the Australian government's been talking about taking steps to try to rein them in and to 
to um, to get some money out of them. And interestingly enough, that if you're if you're a bully, you obviously succeed because, mm. as we know, when they talked about forcing them to pay media giants here, so you you force them to pay Rupert Murdoch, which yeah. I find interesting, but not the ABC uh, or SBS. No, yeah. no, no, don't be silly. Um, the when they did that, of course, Facebook virtually locked down Australia. Yeah. Google went. They all went. They all carried on and said, "We're going to ban you." Therefore, if you do this to us, this is terrible. It's a pretty big tantrum. Well, it actually works, you see, because yeah. small and medium-sized businesses are urging the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to be careful in its campaign against the tech giants. The chief executive of Melbourne-based women's boutique Carolyn K. Morgan and Femme Connection is concerned any fallout from Google and Facebook in response to the ACCC probe into market power abuses would likely fall on local businesses. Raja Uppal is worried about the residual impact of the ACCC inquiries in which Google or Facebook may react negatively as witnessed during the media bargaining code negotiations when Google threatened, well, we know what they threatened, this could adversely affect small to medium-sized businesses reliant on the platforms. Earlier this week, Chairman Rod Sims of the ACCC uh, said that it was gathering evidence of market power abuses by the US companies and planned to use two current inquiries to launch a new assault in conjunction with counterparts in Europe, Britain, the US and Canada. Anthony Bianco, director of Tony Bianco's Shoes, said his business had limited experience directly with the ACCC, but the heavy-handed reaction from Google and Facebook to the media bargaining code did make us take notice. If something similar happened to us, we'd obviously need to consider how we adjust or respond to ensure our business continues to perform. Professional services firm Pitcher Partner Strategy Director Terence Tay wants the ACCC to communicate with the small and medium business community on what the probes are trying to achieve, and it goes on. But and the ACCC intends to use a digital advertising services inquiry, etc., etc. But um, clearly, uh, if you bully people, they start to go to water, as it looks mm. like. Well... Yeah, I was just reading something in The Guardian. Um, it was from March, but it was talking about the lobby power of um, – it was talking about in terms of climate change and uh, it was actually making the argument that we don't um, – you know, that it's not much evidence for living in a democracy and that in America that you could be better framed as an oligarchy because of the power of lobby groups. Mm. And that I think um, – an oligarchy or a plutocracy, one of the two or yeah. both. Well, and um, Dave Sweeney, when he was on, talked about like the amount of money that um, oil and gas companies put into lobbying government. And I think it was something like $200 million a year. Mm, I'm yeah. not sure, a year or in yeah. total or what, yeah. whatever it was. And um, when you think about that kind of money, then uh, an individual citizen has nowhere near, like anywhere near that kind of power no. or to influence government. And so the idea of, you know... One person, one vote. Flawed as it was in the beginning anyway, because women and Absolute slaves joke. and Indigenous people weren't included. <laughs> but, yeah, even even in its best version, it doesn't come close to matching the power of lobby groups and, well, and powerful industry groups like Facebook. Right. And, well, I'm yeah. sure Joe Toscano would agree with you there on the next program. <laughs> that one, Coming but, uh, up, Anarchist World this <laughs> week with Meg and Joe. He'll <laughs> mention Bastille Day, of course, because he always does, but uh, it's interesting, yeah. Uh, but uh, you're right. I was yeah, about no, to start no. singing the French national anthem, but I won't. No, don't, please. No, everyone's shaking their hands <laughs> after the show, guys. Oh, beautiful. A private concert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Now, also, the government, of course, has been talking about um, increasing, at least has been 
cutting income tax for the high-income people, which is going to come in in a couple of years. And the ALP keeps saying, well, it hasn't made up its mind how it's going to address it yet. But yesterday's financial review said it's already decided it won't oppose them, which is wonderful, isn't it? The ALP is wow. going to support it. And the reason is because if, if they opposed it, it would give the government opposition against them in the next election to say what? they oppose, they, they, they're, a, they're a party of high taxes, etc., etc., oh, all that rubbish they go on with. Now, this morning I noticed on an interview on the ABC, their, their uh, shadow treasurer claimed they haven't yet made up their minds. Mm -hmm. But the inference in the story in the Fin Review yesterday was that the right wing in, in, the, in the ALP caucus mm -hmm. uh, desperately wants them not to oppose it for political reasons. so Because they have people sort of out to lunch with them saying, listen, it would be really nice. I've, I've only got $700 million. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> really need the that government extra. wants to take some off me. Yeah. Uh, so there we are. So I mean, that's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's but anyway, disheartening. So they, they're going to water, and the reason for it is only pragmatic, nothing to do with principle or the exactly, fact that yeah. we should be taxing the rich even more. Mm. Uh, and in fact, we're cutting taxes on them. So, mm. isn't it wonderful? Mm. Uh, we that would um, perhaps if we raise some taxes on them, we might be able to afford public housing, which we'll talk about later. But mm. no, perhaps not. Perhaps, I don't know. Perhaps, I mean, they earned that money. That's right. They, they earned. Did it on their merit. Yeah, we yeah. might, whether we get time to raise with Libby, but tonight and this week also at the super rich who in the last year have bought houses because house prices are rising so incredibly high. Mm. One, a, a family, in, a, a rich person in Sydney who bought one for, I think it was four million, sold it within months for five and a half. So they're making fortunes mm. and selling immediately because house prices are going through the roof. Mm. If you've got money, you, you make more, obviously. Which is which is unfortunately true in this mm -hmm. in this sort of society, and we mentioned the other week also that Keith Pitt, the uh, minister for fossils, had uh, Keith Pitt Pony, minister for fossils, that he had he had vetoed a proposal for a renewable farm up in the northern area from a, a loan from the Northern Development mm -hmm. Fund, whatever it's called, because he said that renewable energy now, wind and solar. Uh, mature enough to stay on their own feet. We mentioned this last mm -hmm. week, and yet last week he then gave, approved millions to a new coal mine, mm -hmm. which proves that coal is not yet mature enough to stay on its own feet. Mm. Uh, but you'll be pleased to know also that this week the government has blocked one of the country's flagship green energy export projects due to a clearly unacceptable impact on the environment. Hmm. And the the opposition to it claims it's um, it's obstructing the transition to clean energy, which is how ridiculous. Mm. The proposed 53 billion Asian renewable energy hub planned in the East Pilbara region of Western Australia was deemed harmful to Ramsar wetlands and migratory birds, under a ruling by Federal Minister Susan Lay that was promptly slammed by green energy advocates, and uh, the. The green energy people say that's absolute rubbish. Now, if it does harm Ramsar and migratory birds, then don't go ahead with it. But Clean mm. Energy Council CEO Kane Thornton said it is seeking urgent clarification from the minister to address the perception that this decision is inconsistent with well-established processes or with the treatment of non-renewable projects. Mm -hmm. And we know that in the same mm -hmm. area, it's been mm -hmm. destroyed by, mm. by the fossil industry. Uh, and he noted the decision was taken before detailed environmental studies had even been completed, mm. uh, etc. But just they've done it again. So mm. there we are. And she, of course, 
Uh, we mentioned the other week also how um, in the federal court, remember we praised the young people who took mm. Susan Lay to court and, and to said that she had a she had a you know a responsibility, a, a responsibility yeah. to uh, to take into account the future, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and Justice Morty Bromberg ruled in their favour mm-hmm. in the federal court. Well, she's announced this week she's going to appeal the decision because she oh. says there there are grounds for appeal. I presume the grounds are that she lost the case. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so but, often with these things, it's just like um, someone didn't tr- duplicate the right form. And file it in the right place, or something like that. Like a lot of these appeals are one on, right. on, yeah, on, spe- on technicalities, specious technicalities. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which is also fled off to uh, Europe, hasn't she, at the moment to oh, yeah. uh, contest to contest the 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 proposal to put the barrier reef on the endangered <laughs> thing because she says that she's claiming it is isn't endangered. Is that a symbol of the Australian yeah. current Australian yeah. government? I don't yeah, know what right. is yeah. to just be like. Please don't list this as a world-recognised symbol. <laughs> please, please, yeah. please, just leave us alone to just trash this continent. And there was, <laughs> and it's also been pointed out that the that intergenerational report that looks ahead forty years, which is quite ridiculous anyway. I mean, how can you? Years, I mean, they, yeah. they can't. The budget, every budget, they can't get it right for one year, yeah. let alone forty. But anyway, that aside, um, people have pointed out that there was no consideration at all of the cost of climate change over the mm. next 40 years at all taken into account. Now, it's already. It's, it's already. Major. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's people's losing their homes and livelihoods yeah. and the uh, catastrophic bushfires and, yeah, flooding but, and... But, no, don't need to take that into account. Refugees, yeah. It's all right. <clears throat> all right, look, it's about 20 past nine, 21, just went ticked over to 21, depending on the clock being correct or not being correct. And um, so let's take a break and we'll come back and talk to Libby Porter about lots of housing issues. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377 3CR ensures that our voices Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station so it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars 
the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people, and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1 pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Okay, back to City Limits, and we've got uh, Professor Libby Porter on the line. She's a Professor of Urban Planning, Urban Design, Urban whatever at RMIT. What are you again, Professor Rob Libby? <laughs> professor of Urban Studies. That's urban right. Studies, that's it, um, at RMIT. And um, Libby, I know you've got a few things you'd like to talk to us about, but, but one of the items we wanted to raise, and, and in fact, I must say to you, I mentioned it earlier in the program. It isn't all bad on the housing front at the moment. There are some really good signs that the the financial review reported last week that rich owners are raking in millions of dollars in gains by reselling luxury homes as little as seven months after buying them. And one mob made uh, $1.5 million on a $4.5 million investment in just a year. So uh, there's not much to complain about, obviously. No, not at all, Kevin. It's um, great times if you're wealthy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And on that, of course, that's one of the reasons we got you on because the OECD uh, recently came down with a report that showed that Australia is now one of the one of the um, one of the countries in the world with the highest housing prices. That I think we're fourth or something in the world in prices. And in fact, there's been stories in the past couple of days about massive increases in the past twelve months in house prices. So. In terms of getting people into housing, it's becoming increasingly difficult, obviously. That's right, yes. 
Um, and the, I mean, I think the OECD report points out things that we kind of already knew in many respects. Um, and, and really, I think the story here is the, the rising level of inequality, exactly as you just painted there, with um, more and more people who are uh, creating wealth from their housing, um, and more and more people shut out from even the most basic ability to uh, to shelter themselves in a, in a safe and, and affordable and and uh, you know good way. I don't know if this is a bit of a left field sort of question, Libby, but. Um when did this become when did housing become a thing that people profited from rather than lived in oh that's a very interesting question i mean sorry <laughs> yeah cuz it yeah my take on this is uh, and and this is relatively widely held um, amongst people who think in more critical terms about um, about housing. Mm-hmm. Housing is much more than simply uh, a way to create wealth or um, a sort of roof over your head or a kind of built form expression. Mm-hmm. It's much more than design or anything like that. Um, I mean, if you think of uh, the, the, the colonial moment um, in Australia mm-hmm. and, and its long um, legacy and, you know, extended um, history and future, <laughs> we still mm-hmm. live in a colonial moment in, in Australia, um, really the, the, the extraction of wealth from land, um, which housing is part of, began uh, on the invasion of, of um, Aboriginal lands here mm. in Australia. Mm. That is, you know, that, that was the beginning of the housing crisis in Australia from a, from a First Nations perspective. Um, First Nations people have always been the people who first bore the brunt of of a housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And we built a system that was entirely uh, coordinated around speculation on land, um, the ability to basically steal land, right, and then make a profit out of it. So all of the work that um, many of the early surveyors and early town planners and, and early house builders did um, in a city like Melbourne, for example, where I am, uh, was um, very much around generating the ability to take wealth from something that they had stolen in the first place. Mm. Uh, and we saw really rapid rises in, ha- in house prices and land prices, even in those early years, from 1835 when Hoddle laid out his grid that we now walk around in the city centre of Melbourne. Um, just a few years later, people were making up to 1,000% um, increases in, in their uh, extraction of wealth from the same, same piece of land when they flipped it. So we've been doing this for you know, nearly 200 years uh, here, here in this country. Uh, and so it's kind of, I, I think, sort of embedded in, our, in the way we think about what housing is. And that's why it's really difficult to shift. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, just on that, the OECD report says supply has been rigid because of regulatory measures such as restrictive land use regulations and restrictive uh, zoning in many cities, greater flexibility in land use regulations and zoning, etc. They go on with that. And the Productivity Commission, in responding to it, urged state governments to cut development approval zones, uh, approval times, and to relax their highly prescriptive planning systems. So they really want us to give absolute carte blanche to developers and, and the rich, I presume. Of course. And this, look, this debate has been underway, uh, certainly in Australia and elsewhere, for literally decades. Uh, it's so tired, um, and, and many of us are so tired of it. If, if you could solve housing affordability with supply, we would have done it by now. 
we have had massive increases in supply of housing year on year for decades. Supply is not the problem. Regulation is not the problem. The regulatory regime is there to ensure that all of us, as citizens living in communities and society together, have a set of values about what will constitute the right way to think about our, our use of land and our relationship to, to places. That's what it's there for. If we start, and, and we have, it's not as if we haven't started um, pulling at the edges of that and, and unpicking it, uh, we, we start getting into all sorts of tricky territory. So the answer is, in my view, certainly not about um, reducing regulation and reducing red tape. That's the, the kind of classic easy reach um, that m most governments... Um, of most shades, actually, um, reach for. Uh, and, and I think it's really important for listeners to remember that there is... We talk about um, reducing uh, red tape and those kinds of things to, to help housing supply. What we don't talk about is the ways in which government su supports, actually, hugely with, with enormous um, forms of subsidies, like negative gearing, for example. So government um, is, is intrinsically involved in bolstering the wealth creation that you mentioned at the outset, um, Kevin, in your introduction, of people who are able to extract large amounts of wealth by you know, flipping homes quickly or by negatively gearing, doing all of those kinds of things that we know to be wrong. So, so the idea that government needs to get out and let you know the public, uh, sorry, let the let the private sector do its thing, um, is is a kind of furphy, really. It's a, it's a nonsense. Um, and as I say, if we were going to solve the housing affordability problem with um, supply, we would have done that well and truly by now. The answer is not there. Uh, we need to look at other kinds of alternatives, other kinds of measures, um, and public housing has to be one of those that has to be right in the centre of it. Which answers the next question, because I was going to raise the fact that the OECD and the Productivity Commission looking for solutions like relaxing regulations, no-one's come up with the idea that may just maybe public housing could solve the problem. That, that's exactly right, and of course, that this is a subject dear to my heart um, and, and dear to many people's hearts. Actually, that uh, that we keep um, and, and and governments, I think, keep ignoring, uh, and we need to, you know, do this work of, of keeping it front and centre of, of the, the public discussion, uh, because we it's so easy to get distracted by you know fancy financial models that um, someone invents to you know deliver X number of affordable housing units on X site, you know, with this, these are the kinds of conversations we see in the media all the time. Um, and, you know, look, there might be a place for those kinds of things, but at, at its core, what we're talking about here is that housing is a, is a human right. Um, it, we all need a place to, to call home. We all need proper shelter that's warm and, and that's within our ability to pay for it, if we think of that's what affordable means when it boils down to it. Um, and so if we keep that at the centre of our conversation, uh, what we need to be doing is really decommodifying housing. We shouldn't have a system that um, generates so much wealth um, from, from a housing system. That, that should be generated in other ways. Uh, what we need to make sure is that everyone is, is appropriately housed according to their, their needs and, um, and according to their means. Uh, and as you say, public housing needs to be right in the centre of that. And at the moment in Victoria and in other states, what we have uh, is a decline in public housing, a kind of assault, actually, um, on public housing. Uh, it's really no less than that, uh, with governments actively turning their backs 
on the public housing system, actively privatising public housing estates, actively privatising public land that could be used for public housing uh, and displacing whole communities um, of residents who, who live in public housing. Uh, and this is really a disgrace in my view. Um, speaking of um, supply and demand, um, the Victorian government announced the big housing build I think last year, uh, partly as a response to COVID and talking about jobs in the construction industry. Do you have any comments on that? I have many comments on the big housing bill. I wish it was the big public housing bill. If I announced that, I I would have been um, ecstatic, as many many people have been. Um, What we've got here is is a a, a really... um, I think, a very firm uh, statement from the Victorian government about its turn away from public housing. Um, because what we've got is uh, the entirely an emphasis on the delivery of a privatised, um, if you like, kind of social housing system delivered either through community housing providers um, or the private market in the forms of, um, and of course you can't see me, but I'm using scare quotes here, mm-hmm. um, affordable housing, which is, of course, never really affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, much community housing is not really affordable because it's capped. Rents rents begin at 30% of people's income, which is where we know housing stress begins. When you're paying 30% of your income on housing, you're already in housing stress. So Mm -hmm. community housing itself, um, which is the form of of social housing delivered through community housing providers, not through um, the public system, uh, is is already uh, seeing people in housing stress. And and that's true, too, um, of... Uh, some of the rental subsidies and, and forms of assistance in the in the private market that the, the government, um, the federal government in particular, runs, um, that you know, are often put forward as the solution. Um, those people are in housing stress too. So in, these are enormous amounts of public money going into attempting to help uh, people on low incomes find housing in the private market, um, which much of the, the big housing build is kind of built around that kind of idea, that sort of principle, um, and we know that to be not working. Those people are still in housing stress. It doesn't solve affordability problems. What does solve affordability is public housing. Um, and, and if you want, I can unpack a little bit more the, the big housing build approach. Um, mm. if that's for your listeners. Um, so one of the things that happens with these kinds of announcements is that they get government um, rather um, uh, perhaps without uh, meaning to, I suppose, um, forget to count the loss of public housing dwellings. So a huge portion of um, what they call the fast start housing, um, which will be new homes on what is already owned by um, the what was the Department of Health and Human Services now, Homes Victoria, building on their land, so land that's currently owned for housing um, by the public. Uh, all of those estates are, are currently public housing. So we've got um, around about 446 or so public housing dwellings that are on the dedicated sites that have been identified as part of this big housing build, sort of the, the first portion of it. Um, and so what that means is that when you count the demolition of what is already there, and which all of those homes are already lived in, they have residents um, living inside them, they are home to, to a whole bunch of people, um, what we get is a net gain of social housing from, this is working from the, the government's figures, um, of around about 54, 55, that kind of number of, of dwellings across all of those sites. So 
but th what what happens is that they want to talk about it as um, we're building you know 500 new social housing dwellings. Well, you're actually knocking down 446 or so to create 500 um, and privatising them in the process. So what we're not getting is a really clear picture for the public to understand what's going on here in terms of what's get, what's lost and what we might gain from that. And it's a really expensive way to do public housing because that's, um, that portion of the, the big housing bill costs about $530 million um, and we get around about 50 or 60 new social housing dwellings. That's mm. a very, very poor <laughs> use of public money um, for, for those dwellings. So these are the kinds of issues with the big housing bill. And they won't be public housing as such as we'd, we'd want to see. No, they they are again to be delivered through community housing organisations, um, and there's a role for community housing, of course, in in the, the social housing sector, but not at the expense of public housing. Um, and we know community housing is more expensive, as I've just said. It's it's at thirty percent of of tenants' um, incomes, uh, and it tends to be a little bit less secure with fewer rights um, than people who are public housing tenants experience. And does, that doesn't mean that public housing is perfect by any stretch. <laughs> Anyone in, living in public housing will tell you that. Um, but that doesn't mean we should walk away from it. It means we should fix that system. We should we should attend to it properly. Um, government needs to be a responsible landlord, and it, it doesn't do that well, but that's not an excuse to walk away from it. Yeah, I, I have a regular dinner group with some people who are quite critical of public housing, and I say to that, that's what I say to them, look, let's make it work. If it isn't mm. working, let's make it work. Um, yeah. But let's not go in the other direction and get rid of it altogether. Um which is the awful part. Indeed, and this is often what we hear from, you know, the kind of the discourse, the, 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 the narrative that comes often from government um, is around, oh, they're, you know, the, the, the units are tired and they're not fit for purpose and they're dilapidated and they're falling down. Well, there's a good reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> hasn't been, been maintained, yeah. Maintained. Mm. So they're linked to... to to kind of disintegrate um, and then, you know, that makes them kind of ripe for redevelopment. It makes it easy to make this argument that, oh, well, therefore we should knock them all down and move all the people out and have a private sector partner come in and rebuild them as, as partly private housing and partly community housing. It, it's like we've sort of signed up to this idea and we're not thinking critically about how to really engage with what are we losing in the process there because we really are losing an enormous amount. Um, it, it's hugely worrying. It should worry all of us. This is going to be a difficult question to answer, but we've, we're seeing Martin Foley on telly pretty regularly these days because he's Minister for Health around COVID. But in his previous life as Minister for Housing, he didn't exactly cover himself in glory, did he? No, well, um, not in my view. Uh, he was certainly a, a kind of principal architect of um, what is... The public housing renewal program, um, which has a longer life, of course, it, it existed um, in different forms prior to that, and, and this conversation has been around um, a lot longer than, um, than when uh, Martin Foley was the was the minister, um, and and so you know I agree, but I. It's not really a question so much for me, anyway, of, of which government or which minister is doing which thing. It's, mm. it's the form of ideology that we've kind of collectively um, seem to be supporting and, and um, perpetuating. And, and I think uh, we really need to become clear uh, about what is actually going on here. Yeah, it, it, going back when Brian Howe was the federal housing minister and, and Barry Pullen was the state minister here... That seemed to me to be the beginning of, of government pulling away from really funding public housing in a real sense. And I know Pullen, for instance, withdrew 
workers off the estates. He, he, workers had you know the, the state um, the state funded workers on estates back then, but then the, he pulled them all off. So I feel that was a period when we really started to lose ground big time. That's absolutely right, um, and and that sort of has been continuing really you know, sort of relatively unabated, um, perhaps with the exception of a little spike in building um, under the under Rudd's announcement um, under a package that delivered quite a few um, new social housing dwellings, some of which were public housing. Um, so yes, I think that it's important to kind of see that you know the long the long durée, if you like, of uh, of the decline of public housing. That you know its heyday was was really the kind of 60s, um, and we've we've never really um, invested properly and and, um, and done much since then, and, and the stock is actually declining in real terms year on year, uh, and will continue to do so. There's no indication that that is going to change. Um, so what we're, we're one of the ways that we're kind of trying to track this um, within our Safe Public Housing Group um, called the Safe Public Housing Collective, um, if anyone's interested in getting involved, please do get in touch with us, uh, is we're starting to map uh, these um, announcements and these effects across uh, concentrating very much on the city of Melbourne um, or the metropolitan area of Melbourne at the moment, but it could be done in, in other places as well. Um, and I encourage your listeners to go and have a look at um, what we're starting to do. You can find the website at map.savepublichousing.com mm. and you'll see us uh, beginning there to tell the stories of, of what's being lost um, so that people can properly understand and, and um, have a have a uh, more accurate picture of of what is actually unfolding uh, across the state and particularly in Melbourne. Yeah, um, that sounds really interesting and of course it also sounds like a lot of this it has an ideological uh, um, impetus coming at it before before a financial one from the sound of it. Um, the You mentioned about how uh, public housing estates had been um, not maintained and that was part of the reason that the renewal project by the Victorian government was justified, um, which has, has seen a lot of people move been moved out of their public housing homes and uh, those uh, uh, buildings knocked down and to be renewed, so, so to speak. Um, uh, there's an expansion happening of the renewal program, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, and we and we could very much see the, the big housing builders as a sort of form of that expansion as well. Um, but but in other ways too, um, perhaps more subtle, and and that um, you you might only know about if you lived in some of these um, in in you know the neighbourhood and you were sort of starting to hear about it. So for example, there's a, um, a series of, of renewal programs around um, the, the metropolitan area of Melbourne. One of them is at Braybrook, um, a huge regeneration project, a sort of long term what they call long term renewal program. Um, it's located within the city of Maribyrnong um, around the, the sort of neighbourhood and suburb of Braybrook, um, which currently has quite quite a large, in Melbourne terms anyway, um, amount of public housing. It's around about 20%, I think, um, of the Braybrook suburb is public housing. Um, and the plan is, uh, again, based on this idea that the, you know, the housing is poor quality and um, it needs to be demolished and the whole area needs a sort of transformation. Um, I read that as, you know, there aren't enough Cinzano, I'm and hipster cafes um, in the area, and it's often 
you know, Braybrook's often held up as this kind of pariah suburb mm. um, and, uh, and is, is, you know, terribly stigmatised in very unfair ways. Of course, there are, there are social problems like there are anywhere, um, but this is often weaponised and, and used um, in order to justify these, these kinds of programs. Um, so in Braybrook, there will be a, a wholesale kind of demolition of, of housing. Um, th these aren't big estates in, in a place like Braybrook. They're more sort of scattered, um, single uh, dwellings, around the, the neighbourhoods um, and we will see it's starting already many of those um, residents in those areas that, who live in public housing are being relocated right now um, in order to make way for that demolition and, and none of them are going to be rebuilt as public housing or at least there is no indication of that at this point and the current trajectory as we've been talking about of the policy agenda um, which is very much driven by this kind of ideology that is anti-public housing um, is is suggest that nothing will be public housing that is uh, returned to this area. It will be um, a, a small amount of uh, community housing, provided housing, and all of this uh, idea of, you know, sort of dressed up um, affordable housing, which is just another way of saying it's market housing at a, you know, slightly subsidised rent, which frankly doesn't help terribly many people when the, when the rents are so high to begin with. Yeah, so it sounds like just a, a, a renewal is, is not really an accurate term. It sounds like uh, just removal of public housing. You couldn't have, you couldn't have said <laughs> right. And, and renewal, the words like renewal and regeneration uh, in, encourage um, your listeners to, to be very suspicious when they hear mm. those words um, because they are so, it's a bit like resilience, and they're so often used uh, to hide what is actually simply privatisation and displacement. Mm. Um, they're, they're very... Um, irregularly. Um, they're not very often actually about community-based renewal, where people remain in place, uh, have additional services um, brought to their area. Uh, it's not about saying, and you know, we often see this too, it's such a false kind of binary in the, in the, in the, dis, in the, the ways, that the narrative that gets kind of put forward. Um, you, you can't have uh, a, a sort of declining area and, and not renew it, right? There's this idea that, you know, that uh, you have to just demolish everything, um, you know, blank slate kind of approach and, and rebuild it. It's mm -hmm. just not true. Um, it, it's not true, and there are examples around the world uh, where you know this can get done, um, and, and you can keep people in place. You can hold communities together. Um, you can show that you care uh, about the environments that they live in and improve those environments without displacing them. Mm. Yeah, and Libby, I know you wanted to talk about the social housing regulations as an inquiry into them. Did you want to have a give us a burst yeah. on that one? Indeed, sure. The, um, this is uh, something for, for your listeners to just be aware of and have on the radar. Um, it's, I think this is quite an important um, discussion, actually, this, this moment of this review um, being chaired by Professor David Hayward, uh, who happens to be a colleague at RMIT University mm. as well. Um, uh, I, I, no conflict of interest there, I, I promise. Um, who uh, is, is leading a review, has been asked by, tasked by government to lead a review into the regulatory framework around social housing in its entirety. So that includes both public housing, that's delivered by, by Homes Victoria, um, and the community housing sector, which are you know, not-for-profit but private uh, community housing organisations. Um, and, and just trying to look at what is that framework? Does it work? Is it fair? Um, is it, does it 
lead to just outcomes. Uh, those kinds of questions, I think, are kind of front and centre of that review. Um, so I definitely want to encourage people to make submissions that which are open for their first phase, uh, I, I think, at the moment, and the second phase is coming up uh, shortly. So, um, you know, that's a really important test, I think. You know, if we think about it as if this policy agenda is about effectively privatising um, public housing and pushing all of it to the community housing sector, then we must make sure that the regulatory framework for that sector is very robust um, and, and that sector is held to the same level of accountability um, and those residents have the same amount of rights as those in, in the public sector um, in terms of um, public housing, the public housing resident sector, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a kind of a... Um, we don't want to give up the fight for... Um, you know, continuing to push for the building of public housing and the retention of public housing, but at the same time we, we do need to um, have this conversation about, you know, given that this is happening um, and it is being privatised, we must make sure that that regulatory framework is solid for those people who are living um, as, as tenants of community housing organisations. Uh, and there's some evidence at the moment that that's not the case, and so that needs to be um, seriously addressed. Interesting, because David Hayward, back when Kennett was privatising the utilities here, he was very vocal in, in opposing it on purely economic grounds at that time alone. Um, so he's, he's not a bad choice to, to run that inquiry, I would have thought. That's right, and very knowledgeable too. Um, and in fact, <clears throat> recently wrote an article in um, in the I think it was in the Sydney Morning Herald um, about a month or so ago, uh, really teasing out this way in which the, you know government subsidies um, support private landlords to the tune of billions um, mm. because the, the rental sector is actually hemorrhaging. Uh, money out of out of uh, the private rental sector, all all of it being soaked up in um, in, in public subsidy to to private owners. Uh, why should we, you know, continue to to pay that bill when public housing is actually the answer um, to to this to this issue uh, of of making sure everybody's housed properly? He said that very clearly in that article. Yeah, well, excellent. Because there's also there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald recently about the Sirius building as well, and the, the architect who designed it uh, had an article um, attacking the. It's a building in Sydney that's been public that's been torn down and built for the rich. In that the, has been genuinely in, renewed in the rocks. That's <laughs> so, yeah. in, in the rocks <laughs> yeah. area, but also Miller's Point above it, which was beautiful right. public housing that was saved by the green bands and which has been effectively privatised. And That's governments right. say, yeah, but we can use this money to build new public housing. But that, of course, is miles from the centre of the city where you, know, you had this beautiful public housing right on the edge of Sydney. That's exactly right. And uh, the serious building and, and, and Miller's point in that whole area is um, a very good example of, of that ideology just laid bare, right? Mm. So you have taken uh, a, a very um, well-located uh, side of public housing. Um, you have what happened was a, basically a vilification of that community. Uh, some of the, the sort of public conversation around uh, when that building was privatised, because uh, they didn't demolish the serious building, of course, because it's heritage listed. Um, they just turned it into fancy apartments mm. and yeah, pulled right. it off enormous mm. amounts of money. Um, but uh, a lot of the conversation at that time was, and we need to hold ourselves to account here really as, as, as members of a community, um, you know, people said things like, why should poor people um, have such, have harbour views? Um, well, yeah. why should they? Yeah. <laughs> Who yeah. says they should? Yeah. 
um, given that we should be locating public housing um, right in the, the centre of you know, the nexus of services, of facilities, of access to employment, um, of all of the things that people need. And, and what we're doing is, as, as you rightly said, is, is pushing that out to the peripheries and, and relocating people, if we're doing it at all. Um, you know, we, no one ever gets held to account on, oh, we're, we're going to use the money for building new public housing. Does anyone ever yeah. follow that up and find out whether that actually ever actually uh-huh. happened? Yeah, well, we, um, I had a cousin who lived in, lived in Miller's Point Public Housing and um, in the 1988 bicentenary after the march, because um, we were staying with them, on the evening we sat on the balcony and watched the fireworks, um, <laughs> you know, and that was, it was just, just absolutely beautiful and that's unfortunately now gone to the rich. <laughs> Exactly right. And very similar to what's happening here in Melbourne, as we've just been discussing, that many of these sites that I'm talking about, you know, the big housing bill, the public housing renewal program, they are all very well located mm. public housing estates, very well located. They are knitted into neighbourhoods. Um, we do not have the situation that, uh, you know, is often the case in parts of the US or, or um, and Europe and the UK in particular, um, where you have kind of peripheral, what they call the schemes, housing schemes, um, that are, are not well knitted into neighbourhoods um, and, and are, you know, a particular form of, um, of housing disadvantage. Now, that still the answer is not just to demolish them, you know, and, and do the blank slate approach, um, but, you know, the, the idea that we have to kind of get rid of housing estates um, because they're not socially mixed enough. This is another term that often gets used um, and is, again, a real, um, a real obfuscation. It just obscures what's actually going on because they're very mixed. They're well mixed into their neighbourhoods. Uh, and, and what we do is we dress this stuff up as if, you know, we shouldn't have lots of poor people um, living together. Uh, well, we should, probably shouldn't have lots of rich people living together either. I was going to say, parts of Turek are certainly well, well, well socially mixed, aren't they? <laughs> and yet we never talk about um, you know, Turak or places like that as um, they are not well, well mixed areas. We <laughs> but they are, you see, Libby, they are. <laughs> well, public in Turok. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah. We'll, ha- we'll have and to finish up in a minute, Libby. Thank you so much for all of your time. I'm sure Kevin has about 10 million more questions. Well, there were millions of things. There yeah. was also a report that um, 7,700 7, women are in danger of housing shortage because of domestic violence, but we didn't even get onto that one. But uh, mm. we can we can do that again yeah. in the future at some point, yeah. In the future. I'd love to come back again and talk again. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Libby. Thanks, Libby. Welcome. Right, Libby Porter, Professor of Urban Research at um, IMIT. That's yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> she's a was professor. It, how close was yeah. it? <laughs> so, did you say Centre of Urban Research? I said that she's a professor of urban research. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's a professor at the Centre of Urban Research. Right. Yeah. Well, that makes her a professor of whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. And she mentioned the Save Public Housing Collective. I was going to get more information from from her about that, but I think if anyone's listening and wants to find out yeah. more, they can Google yeah. Save Public Housing Collective. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, very interesting that I think it was. Very interesting. She, she certainly knows her stuff, Libby Porter. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. And. Um, Next week, of course, is um, next week is housing, isn't it? <laughs> We're back to our normal housing, <laughs> so we'll uh, yeah. we'll presumably have a housing with age action group. We'll have um, friends of public housing and uh, talk about it even more. Mm, brilliant. And may we may even discuss what some of what we discussed today. We may do. We, we may get a well. double double go. Meg, yep. thank Karina for doing a magnificent job keeping us on air. Karina, that was amazing. You're a superstar. Thank you. No problems. I'm going to put a song on next. This is Chi Chi 
by Ziggy Ramo featuring Maisha. I'm so tired of hiding that I'm dying inside. I'm steady holding back tears in a country that's blind, in a country that's black, but we don't talk about that. I nearly took my own life and turned it into a stat, but you don't wanna talk about my trauma. Talk about my dad being flora and fauna. Talk about the fact you benefit from my suffering. Talk about the fact I never lived on my country. I'm disconnected, but you ain't affected. On the day to day, so you ain't never learned the message. Well, this shit is desperate. I had a family who loved me with a clean bill of health. 20 years down under, I wanted to kill myself. And I still do, from time to time. It brings me comfort, it calms my mind When I was young I didn't realize I had a disease I figured it was normal to want to be at peace And I found it When I crossed the street I closed my eyes, crossed my fingers Hope a truck killed me Hope that I could be free From all of this hurt You only stand with me on top of six feet of dirt I want what you want, I swear we all the same I don't want to live my life digging my own grave I don't want to explain why the shit ain't okay I don't want to see the same cycle happen again I don't want to hold my children while they shaking in pain Bring them into the world and tell them that it's okay Do I lie to they face? What the fuck do I say? When the same very pain made me want to blow my brain Same pain made my dad an alcoholic His dad had the same faith, this shit is hard to stomach But you watch it, as long as you profit, you forgotten We the skeletons that you hanging from your closet For the moments when I'm not there Know that you're here, always with me For those humble chains on your feet Believe them to be slave to nobody At each crossroad to find yourself Or somebody else will take the lead And know that love cannot be given If your heart is built by what you give, not receive My dad called and he gave me some wisdom He said, son, I can see you dealing with symptoms I see your pain, I felt the same If you want real change, you gotta play the long game There's no easy fix, this shit is all consuming I know you're overwhelmed, I know this shit's confusing I know you're troubled and don't know what to do with it The simple answer is, we're all human So understand why you want this change If you don't ask why, you might be here today But your motivation fades if you ain't got no stake in seeing this through Cause this is gonna take much longer than a second Longer than a minute We might only lay the groundwork, our children finish You won't fix what you don't understand Man created this problem, the solution's in your hand You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.